Hey, I'm Jeffrey, and I'm a gay Asian. You're probably asking yourself, why do I need to listen to Gaysian? Well, the gay and Asian identity can be an invisible one. Gay and Asian representations are limited, and because so, our community is reduced to stereotypes. Gaysian is my lived experience, and whether I tell stories about my life or tell you what's on my mind, I'm telling a Gaysian perspective. Ally or not, we are all susceptible to believing that there is one stereotypical story that defines an entire community. And so, I want you to get to know me. I want us to get deep. And I want you to get to know the complete story of a Gaysian. On today's show, I'll be talking about the season premiere of RuPaul's Drag Race Season 13, that twist, and my favorite queen so far. I'll also be sharing my New Year's resolution, and of course, I'm doing things a little differently. Okay, a lot differently, but I actually think I may be onto something. Maybe? All that and more, coming up. Hey, Hot Mess Heroes, make sure you're subscribed to Gaijin on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts and turn on notifications so you know whenever a new episode drops. Also, follow Gaijin Podcast on Instagram at Gaijin Podcast. It's the best place to interact with me and other Hot Mess Heroes. Hey, Hot Mess Heroes, Happy New Year. <laughs> We've been in 2021 for all but five minutes and already something amazing has happened. The premiere of RuPaul's Drag Race Season 13, and spoiler alert, there will be a lot of spoilers. Uh, I think I'm already late to the party, and you've probably watched the episode already, but if you don't want spoilers, skip to the end where I talk about how I plan to stick to my New Year's resolutions. But anyway, back to RuPaul's Drag Race Season 13. When I heard there was going to be more Drag Race, I was like, whoa, a new season? Drag Race is the gift that keeps on giving, especially during quarantine. RuPaul just keeps on going. He kept giving the fans what they wanted, more and more Drag Race. I mean, I'm not complaining about it, but let's see here. During quarantine, there were like 2.5 new seasons of Drag Race. We first went into quarantine and the rest of season 12 finished with lip syncs from home. Jada Essence Hall was the winner, and then there was All-Stars 5 right after, which Shea Coulee won. And then there was RuPaul's Vegas Review uh, with the epic Vangie and Cameron makeout sesh. And there was even Drag Race Canada sprinkled in there, Priyanka the winner. And uh, fun fact, Lemon was actually a huge inspiration for the Gaijin branding, but lots and lots of Drag Race during quarantine. So I asked myself, uh, how did they do all this filming during the pandemic and produce and push out new episodes? Uh, but Raven, competitor from season one and all-star season two, who's now RuPaul's makeup artist, said in an interview that when they shut down in March, um, they shut down 
and then they resumed production in July. And she was thrilled to come back to set. She said that she had just been sitting around at home doing a bunch of nothing, got the phone call, came right back to production. But when they came back, they had some pretty serious protocols. They were pretty strict, separating the production staff into three separate groups. And then they were tested three times a week uh, with rapid turnaround results. And she said that if you tested positive or if your results were inconclusive, you were not allowed on the set. And a lot of the crew and producers actually stayed in their trailers and the filming was done over iPads or computer monitors. And Raven said that once they wrapped the season, they actually had to film the rest of RuPaul's Drag Race UK season two. So it looks like Drag Race is not letting COVID hold them back. So why do I love Drag Race so much? Uh, Hot Mess Hero actually DM'd me and asked, how do you keep in touch with your queer family? And my answer to that is Drag Race. My boyfriend and I are also religious viewers, me a little more so, but that's just because I'm obsessed. Um, But how I describe Drag Race is it's a sports league that's a mashup of all of my favorite reality competitions, Top Model, Project Runway, and I guess Survivor, but, you know, I haven't talked about the twist yet. And of course, stunning, gorgeous, fierce drag queens and lots of makeup. I just love watching them put on makeup. I could watch for hours. I especially love watching the makeup tutorials on YouTube. The Valentino ones are my favorite. Um, but a coworker actually recently asked me, what is Drag Race? Seriously asked me, what is Drag Race? Because I, I was telling them how excited I was for this season to drop. And um, okay, earmuffs or like fast forward if you don't want to hear my rant about Boston, but I'm going to be harsh. And no shade to that coworker, uh, but that's just so typical Boston. Ever since I moved from New York City and I tell people about Drag Race, they're like, WTF, what is that? And I'm like, what? How can you not know? And and more importantly, why? Just why? So for those of you who don't know, I feel sorry for you, honestly. And uh, not in a sympathy way. <laughs> I sound so mean right now. Um, but I feel sorry for you. Is it fair to say if you don't know what drag race is, you're like uncultured? Okay, horrible thought. <laughs> but Boston, that's what it is for you. I swear, I think that's it's a mortal sin in New York City if you don't know what the show is. Anyway, that was probably super messed up of me to say. But when I was younger, I was forced to watch NBA, PGA, MLB, like whatever other sports conference association thingy there is and Drag race is our sport. Drag race is a sport, y'all. I mean, back to what I was saying about drag race being the thing, the topic of conversation with my queer family, we'd go after work every Friday to Boxers. Boxers is a gay sports bar in Chelsea. It's like gay sports bar themed, I guess, with like shirtless bartenders. And everyone would yell and like throw tantrums at the TVs. And then during commercials, we'd all just sip our vodka sodas and dance. Uh, It's gay sports, y'all. Drag race builds community. Yes, there's a ton of ish about it that's problematic. But this isn't the episode where I hyperanalyze it and pick it apart. Although I'm going to do that with some of the queens in a second. But um, 
Drag Race gave me my own queer superheroes to look up to. It's their stories and their personas and their art and how they package that all into this alter ego, a character that allows them to express love, confidence, and strength. And for our community to have its sport gives us a venue for our own emotional expression. It gives us the gay fantasy league we deserve, not the basketball one or the, um, the football one or whatever the other ones are. And it allows us to engage in healthy debate. So before I talk about my favorites this season and that twist, yeah, I'm going to get to it. Let me just say this. If you haven't watched RuPaul's Drag Race, which at this point is impossible, I forgive you. All right, season 13, episode one, let's get into it. At the beginning of every RuPaul season, all 13 queens arrive into the workroom, strike their signature pose, and then once all 13 of them are there, the competition begins. This season was seriously different. Two queens arrived to the workroom and then were immediately sent to the main stage where they had to lip sync for their life. Yes, one queen was eliminated for each of the lip syncs. One of them was given the pork chop. So I thought to myself, does that mean they actually have to go home on the first episode? Within the first 10 minutes that they arrive to the show, they're eliminated from the show already? Well, we were taken into the room where all of these eliminated queens were, which was called the Pork Chop Loading Dock. And throughout the episode, the queens are freaking out. They're like, how is this happening? I can't believe we were eliminated. Are you really going to go home? But some of them were hopeful. Denali was like, this is just not my time. I don't see myself going home yet. So at the very end of the episode, RuPaul tells all of the eliminated queens that they have a chance to get back into the competition only if they vote one of their queens out. This is what I'm talking about when I say survivor. Cutthroat. I mean, it really just was a knife in the heart for the first episode. And I, at the end of the episode, I was just floored. So I hopped onto Clubhouse and started talking in a room where folks were saying how unfair it was, how sad it was to see all of these queens be eliminated when they just arrived. And I feel all of these things too. I was chatting with a hot mess hero who said, can you imagine spending so much money and then going home the first day? That's a terrifying thought. Um, but regardless, I, I thought it was awesome. I thought the episode was epic. And I honestly think it's one of the best episodes in RuPaul history. I mean, just hear me out. All right, three reasons why I think this episode was the hotness or like this new format is the hotness. Number one, the stakes are raised very high, but in a believable way that doesn't seem inauthentic to the franchise. I hate when shows just do random stuff. 
and make random choices, but having the queens vote off one of the other queens did not feel out of the realm of possibility for the RuPaul universe. I mean, let's not forget, since Shangela's season of All-Stars, every lip-sync winner on All-Stars needs to eliminate one of their fellow queens. So it felt believable that this was happening on Drag Race. It just is shocking that it happened on episode one. Okay, number two. The audience got so much more time with these queens than I think we ever have from another Drag Race premiere. We all got to know each of them and each of them seem so sharp about their craft and their art. And they were each able to describe who they were and what their character was about in a much more developed way. Lastly, I'll say just light a fire under it, RuPaul, and like, she did it. Do whatever you want, RuPaul, but make these queens hungry, and they were. You could see it, especially the ones who were in the pork chop loading dock. Make them want it. Have them defend their art. You know, at the end of it, it's a game. What I saw was that they are hungry. I mean, Rosé? She was scary. She was looking at the producers like, I'm going to kill you. Um, And I know how to give a good teacher look, so I know a scary look when I see one. But I'm excited to see how this will drive the queens. And I know that they came to play. So let's get it on. All right. Let's get into my favorite so far based on first impressions. You know me. I'm always after the looks, the personality, and the competitiveness. I love to see that cutthroat attitude. But my first favorite one is Candy Muse. She was the first queen this season to enter the workroom. She's the Dominican doll from New York City. I think the first ever Dominican doll on the show. Um, And there are four queens from New York City this season. Candy entered the room saying, from the hood to Hollywood, she's made some references to New York City. In the workroom, she described herself as, if you took a sex doll and threw her in the Bronx, that's me. Love it. And then when she was on the runway, she was describing her outfits to the judge, and she said she was very Brooklyn. It was an all-denim dress with a matching denim boombox prop which served her real well on the lip sync. Um, And she already has a signature laugh, which (laughs) is definitely not a real laugh. She worked on that laugh. But it's her. It's Candy. Uh, Candy was a part of the former house of Aja. Aja is her drag mother. But Aja quit drag. um, And then Candy and Dahlia, who's from season 12, she was the first one out on season 12, and their sister, Janelle number 5, they created Dollhouse. So she has quite a bit of history on the show. She has a lot of connections and webs within the universe. And I like a queen who's deep in the work and deep in the network. So why I like her? I mean, she's shady. She's confident and borderline arrogant. She's hilarious and has some funny one-liners. I mean, she makes references to her hairy back and being a hoe. I love her brutal honesty, and she just tells it how it is. I mean, what can I say? I like a shady queen. 
uh, like the ice skating one, Denali. <laughs> she's, I mean, she's scratched up that stage. Um, but she's shady. Like when Joey J, her lip sync competitor, walked into the workroom this season, Candy looked at the camera and she was like, chicken feathers? I mean, as an aside though, I also kind of love Joey J. Anyone who calls themselves out for being basic, I'm down for it. So, Candy, I can't wait to see what she does next. Candy, I can't wait to see what you do next. I saw you looking at one of my Instagram stories. I think she's going to be epic on the comedy challenges, but I'm scared for the choreographed dances. Alrighty, my second favorite queen, based on first impressions, was Simone. She's the drag sister of Gigi Good, who was my favorite from last season, and is a member of the House of Avalon. And apparently, Gigi helped make and style wigs for her. Uh, There are many Instagram posts with both of them, and she's the first queen to represent Arkansas. Uh, That is not one of the reasons why I really like Simone. I know nothing about Arkansas, but apparently she's the first one to represent from uh, the great state of Arkansas, although I think she's living in L.A. now. She wore a dress made of Polaroids of herself, and when Michelle asked her what are the pictures of, she said, very matter-of-factly, they're pictures of her, and she loves herself. Pretty bomb. The dress actually was apparently a look that Giselle Boonchin, yes, Boonchin, and I had to look up how to pronounce that, wore in Esquire magazine circa 2004. So I'm already gathering that Simone has good taste and her fashion knowledge is deep. And I love seeing queens who are inspired by the fashion world, who nerd out in fashion books and magazines, and then they make this stuff for themselves and they paint it on themselves. And I think that's why I probably really loved Aquaria. But this is about Simone, and overall, there is a chill confidence about her, an easiness to her drag, which means that her drag is not easy at all, but she seems to have spent so much time on her craft. During Untucked, she was telling the other queens that she created Simone because it was a thing that helped save her life. And I have deep respect for anyone who uses art as their personal mission and transformation, especially if that art is a gorgeous goddess. All right, so that was my very excited RuPaul's Drag Race update. And I want to hear from you. DM me on Instagram, at Gaijin Podcast. Tell me what you thought about it. And if you have anything to add to my commentary, feel free to send it my way. Coming up next, Hot Mess Heroes, my New Year's resolution. Stick around. Spoiler alert, my New Year's resolution is to stop making choices from a scarcity mindset. Mind blown. I'm going to get to what that means, but first, I'm going to rant, y'all. I'm going to rant. I'm just going to do it. The big question is, how do you maintain resolutions? And as someone who assimilated into this capitalist culture of hyperproductivity, and if you're not overextending, overdoing, or overproducing, then you have no value... I became obsessed with keeping track of my New Year's resolutions. 
I mean, we're trying to fit every possible process, including the process of personal development, into how businesses or corporations track goals. And no, I don't want a dashboard. I treated New Year's resolutions in the past like a helicopter parent. In fact, I'm like that a lot when it comes to goals. I promise, Hot Mess Heroes, I'm unlearning. I promise, but I'm the tiger mom of your dreams when it comes to setting goals and meeting them. Let me illustrate my old approach, or maybe even my current approach. I don't know if I'm the old me, the current me, or the new me, Uh, but let me illustrate my approach through what's called SMART goals. Yes, SMART goals. S-M-M as in Mary. A-R-T, SMART goals. Have you heard of this? No, no, no. Have you honestly heard of this-ish? I mean, okay. So SMART goals, it stands for S for specific, M for measurable, A for achievable, R for relevant, and T for time-based. SMART goals. It's a process for creating and tracking progress towards your goals. And I'm not going to lie. I mean, younger Jeffrey loved this. Okay, teacher Jeffrey loves this stuff. Um, But let me give you an example of how the SMART goals work. And then let me tell you how I'm not going to do any of that this year. No, I'm not doing any of that mess this year. Like, I'm I'm not doing SMART on anything, okay? But let me describe it to you so you have an idea about what it is. All right, so let's say that you want a healthier lifestyle or you want to be more fit. Well, the smart gods would say, uh, that doesn't make any sense. It needs to be S for specific. Um, And so what if you just wanted to get better at cardio? That That's definitely more specific. Okay, but then the smart gods would say, okay, but now it needs to be measurable. Okay, I'm going to stop doing the smart god voice, but... You get my drift. Okay, so it's like, I want to get better at cardio, but it needs to be measurable. Maybe I'm running on the treadmill. That's even more specific. Oh my God, extra credit from the smart gods. So what if I wanted to run on the treadmill three times a week, measurable, right? Because you can count whether or not you ran on the treadmill three times. So now I've got something that's specific. Now I've got something that's measurable. And then A for achievable. Is it achievable given my state of fitness? Um, I would say, yeah, I think it's achievable. Like I, I don't think four times a week would be achievable, but three, like we could keep it to three. Okay, but is it relevant now? Like, is it relevant? R for relevant. Yeah, it's totally relevant because I, I need to, I need to, I need to get my fitness together. Like, I need to get my health in order. So yeah, it's it's totally relevant. Um, but then is it time based? Right, T for time based and smart. <sighs> Maybe I can accomplish this goal. You know, running on the treadmill three times a week, and I do that every week for the next six months. Boom. There we go. Time-based, right? I've locked in that very specific measurable activity within a period of time. And so within that six months, I can really ask myself and assess whether or not I've been running on the treadmill three times a week. Okay. Smart goal. There you go. 
A lot of you have probably heard of this. A lot of you have probably done this because it actually is a good method to use when creating and doing your goals. Uh, but I'm not doing that this year. Like, I'm so over smart goals. Okay, shh, like, don't tell anyone. Like, oh my God, you can't say that in the real world. Um, but we're not in the real world. We're on Gaijin. So welcome. But I'm not doing smart goals this year. Um, so I think for me, the feeling and the experience has always been the thing that's motivated me to do something and tracking it and measuring it and counting how many times I've done it has never really worked for me. It's a way I've operated in my life, but I'm not doing that this year with my New Year's resolution. So what am I doing? I'm going to talk about what my resolution is, why it is what it is, and um, some tips. And I guess these are tips more so for me since this is my New Year's resolution um, on how to get there. But I think this definitely applies to all of you who want to make a turnaround or a transformation this year. And, um, oh my God, this is going to sound so cheesy, kumbaya, or whatever. But first and foremost, I wanted to let go of the typical resolution mentality. You know, I wanted something that had to do with my inner subconscious and what my inner subconscious was doing that I wasn't noticing. And I wanted to work on something that wasn't so obvious. And so I actually discovered what I wanted to work on from journaling and um, stream of consciousness journaling, just waking up in the morning, opening up my notebook and just writing without taking the pen off the paper and just writing whatever comes to my mind. And as I looked back at what I was writing, there was a core issue that I was seeing that was in everything that I was saying. And it was the scarcity mindset. So I decided for this year to work on getting rid of my scarcity mindset or at least softening it because I don't want to make choices driven by feelings of fear that there's not enough or I'm not enough or I'm going to lose something because there's not enough of it. The definition and the term scarcity mindset actually was coined by Stephen Covey, who's the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I think he might actually talk about smart goals in his book. So like, let's just like keep that on the down low. But um, scarcity mentality refers to people seeing life as a finite pie. So that if one person takes a big piece, that leaves less for everyone else. It's the type of thinking that leads to fear and hoarding and micromanagement and short-term thinking. It's just way too interested in the instant gratification rather than on long-term priorities because you're always thinking there's not enough. Think about it this way. If I believe that life is a finite pie, and clearly I do because it's coming up in my thinking all the time, I might think I don't have anything to offer or that others are better than me, or that I'm not enough. And it will keep me from seeing all of the possibilities. If I'm so overly focused on not being enough, or there's not enough of something, I'm not going to see beyond that. So just chew on that for a second. like Chew it up, digest it, 
Yes, I'm already hearing the snaps out there, hot mess heroes. But let me illustrate it also this way. A scarcity mindset says, I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough money. I can't do this. Or if I do this, I'll have to go without. Okay, some of you hot mess heroes out there might be saying, well, it's important to be honest with yourself or that sacrifice is necessary. And I don't disagree. And yeah, in order to survive, we need to acknowledge when we're lacking resources. But the scarcity mindset goes further. It's always feeling like there's a lack of resources through negative self-talk. It's only seeing one negative perspective. And because so, because we're so hyper-focused on this negative perspective, we shrink ourselves or make ourselves small. And we're always stuck in survival mode all the time. Only focusing on the glass being half empty is not honest. That's not honesty. So what am I going to do about it? Well, instead, I'm going to try some positive self-talk. Surprise, surprise. I'm going to say to myself, I can handle this, or I can always make more money, or my mind is powerful, and I'll always have enough. And if I'm aware of getting into the habit of looking at the glass half empty, I'm going to use these phrases to soften the voice that is scarcity mindset. Scarcity mindset is rooted in fear. I mean, that's a hot topic on the show, y'all. Fear. I mean, have I not talked about it enough already? I mean, go back and listen to episode one for more on my fears. But it's clear to me that scarcity mindset is so on brand for me. So I need to do something about it. And how am I going to shift this mindset? Well, I could do all of the things that are going to work and I know will work and people talk about this a lot, but surrounding yourself with the right people. I mean, who am I kidding? It's COVID. Who am I surrounding myself with? Um, Doing gratitude flows where you literally just like list out all the things that you're grateful for. Like, I'm grateful for my home. I'm grateful for the carpet. Like, I'm grateful for my couch. Just grateful, grateful, grateful. And journaling. I mean, I'm going to continue to do my psychedelic stream of consciousness journaling. But here's the thing. Here's the actual tea and why I think this is so important to work on. Scarcity mindset has us making choices from what we feel we lack. I mean, it's kind of a mind fill in the blank sort of moment to realize that the majority of your choices come from what you feel you lack. So you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to poke the bear. I'm not going to provoke the scarcity mindset. I'm not going to fill myself with all of the feelings of what I lack because if I'm filled with that, then what's going to flow out of me comes from that toxic within. I don't want to fill myself with all the things that I'm not. I'm not going to provoke or include myself in anything that makes me feel like I'm less than because I don't want to make decisions and choices from a place of less than. 
I'm putting that away this year. Which brings me back to the SMART goals. You're probably wondering, Jeffrey, how are you going to know if you're softening or defeating the scarcity mindset? And I'm not going to do the SMART goals. I'm not going to track how many times I thought positively. Like, I'm just not going to do it. I mean, quantifying everything, counting, putting myself in a position to feel bad. I'm just, it's anxiety inducing accountability and it's not even meaningful. Have you heard that strategy where you put X's on a calendar? So for each day that you do something, you put an X on that day until you have a long chain of X's. Well, guess what? Breaking the chain terrifies me. The longer the chain gets, it's like, oh shit, I could screw this up at any moment. Whoa, guys, that was like the first time I cursed on the podcast. Okay, now we're at now we're at TVPG. Okay, so what do we do about all of this? What about this? Okay, here is how I'm going to do this without engaging in the SMART goal. Three ways to maintain your New Year's resolutions. Number one. What if someone you loved and trusted became an accountability buddy? I know that sounds so cheesy, but this person is as equally invested in your goal because they love you and they believe in you and they want you to excel. And you know what? You would do the same for them and their dreams. So what if you found that person and you told them about what you wanted to accomplish? Number two. Do a before and after. Journal and write down how you see yourself, what you believe in, and then keep journaling. And then in six months, reread your old journal entries. Trust me, you'll see a lot of growth and there will be a lot to be proud of. In fact, you'll be asking yourself, like, who even is that person? Like, I read some of my journal entries from when I was an undergrad, and it's disgusting. I'm like, oh my God, no. Um, Third and last, do less. Just do less. I'm not even going to say that living through this crisis is close to over, but we've been asked to do too much this year. So just cut it all out. Like, cut it all out all the distractions, all the stuff that don't align to your priorities. They're taking up too much mental space and they're keeping you from having the capacity to focus and do the things that actually matter to you, the things that you actually care about and that are a part of your long-term vision. If we continue to juggle all of the things, like if we don't do less, if we don't cut out all the noise, We're going to miss out on what's actually important to us. And when an important moment arrives, we won't be able to seize it because we're too preoccupied with all the stuff that doesn't matter. So let's try that out, hot mess heroes. Let's try out those three ways for maintaining New Year's resolutions without engaging in the anxiety-inducing SMART goal. So hot mess heroes, if you've made it with me this far, you are the true ride or die. I appreciate you. 
On this episode, we talked about Drag Race, the two queens who made the best first impressions on me, and my New Year's resolution, which is to let go of the scarcity mindset. If you have anything to add, DM me at Gaijin Podcast or send me an email at gaijinpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, bye.